and squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the courthouse And white lightning still the biggest thrill of all All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to episode three of the New World Signals podcast. We are once again here on my Orange County estate with my bowl of mint juleps. And, um, you know, my servants just came by and left me with a uh, the plate of refreshments. It's, it's, it's very, very nice. Uh, it is a nice, cool spring coming into summer evening. And I can see the Blue Ridge Mountains off in the distance. And it's an amazing vista as always. And I am here on the veranda of my estate with my very esteemed guest, a young and aspiring economist, uh, a genius in the matters of all things financial, um, a, uh, a out and out, uh, true believing foaming at the mouth Lutheran, not many of which you will find any anywhere else. Uh, and a, and a friend of mine, I would like to introduce and welcome to the show, Ryan Turnipseed. Thank you very much for coming, Ryan. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I am I am outstanding as always. Um, and I wanted to bring you on uh, to the, uh, the New World Signals podcast. You know, as you know, around here we talk about aspects of Americana that don't often get touched upon or are, uh, or are lesser known. And, um, you know, without taking it as an insult, uh, your, your home state of Oklahoma uh, is, is one of those lesser known states. Um, it's very rarely known for most people in the country outside of a conceptual map with, the, with Texas as the center. It's always kind of looked at as, a, uh, as an extension yeah. of Texas. Yeah, Texas's hat. Um, but uh, Oklahoma is a, you know, not a lot has happened there, but the but the stuff that has happened there is actually very interesting. Um, you know, whether you're talking about as early as the uh, the it's where the Indians were removed after the uh, the Andrew Jackson's uh, Indian Removal Act. It's where um, it's where mm -hmm. the only ever native uh, commissioned up to a general officer rank on either side of the Civil War came from. Uh, lots of oil money was there. Um, you know, an interesting stuff happened there during the New Deal. So, so there's 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 stuff that's happening in Oklahoma that's that's interesting and that is kind of reflective on you know not just the American consciousness, the American spirit, but you know, you know what 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 America's future is and what what it kind of looks like and what the consequences of most of Americans' ideas are. And I wanted to bring you on to kind of discuss this at length um, for the audience and for those who uh, who may not be as familiar with the the state of Oklahoma. So if I could if I could ask you just uh just real quick um could you give like a a geographical and like population type sort of like 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 just a general overview of the state of Oklahoma. Yes. So um in the south, especially in the southeast, you have very sort of forested uh very green humid land, very reminiscent of parts of the south. Um, in the Northwest, uh, Guymon and the Panhandle, it might look like the Southwest, sort of deserty, flatlands, very arid. Um, and then sort of around the Central and in the North area, it's a very green plains, very flat, um, very mild. Uh, I say mild. Uh, for most people, probably not mild. When people think mild, they think of like the Mediterranean or something like that, where it just stays constant. Um, acceptable temperature, we'll go with that. 
um, you know, gets cold in the winter, hot in the summer, but it doesn't get unbearable necessarily in either one. Um, so you get a little bit of everything. Um, and then in the Northeast, you also get parts of the Ozarks and the that region, everything that goes along with the name Ozark. So um, it's very nice. Uh, there's a lot of farmland, obviously, very agricultural agricultural state, and it was like that from the beginning. Uh, we'll discuss that when we get to the natives. Um, and population-wise, um, it is very unique <clears throat> in that originally it was mostly uninhabited, uh, very, very little settled population by the time actual settlers got here. Some of the first notable ones uh, that were in any great number being the Cherokee. Uh, they will come in, uh, into importance later when we talk about the Civil War. Um, and then after them, uh, finally, it was opened up to white settlers in the 1890s, uh, or the majority at least. Um, they partitioned off parts of Oklahoma and some of no man's land, which is the panhandle earlier than that. Um, but um, at that point, you don't necessarily get a set ancient population like you get in the Northeast with the Puritans, like you get in sort of the Central Atlantic with the merchants or the Dutch or the Swedes, anything like that. And you don't get like an Anglo-Saxon uh, aristocracy like you get in the South because it is a very, very new baby state that just had almost nothing there. And this is why it gives rise to very interesting things that you don't see in the rest of the U.S. because it's almost like it's a sandbox to play around with. You see different, very strange political movements that will uh, uh, sort of just take root here, and they'll uh, they will flourish. Some of them, uh, the progressives got to write their own state constitution, uh, one of the few states where they didn't have to force it into the progressive ideal. They just got to write it from scratch. Um, you see a lot of right wing. Uh, populations start to take root. Anything between your normal mainline Dixiecrat to things much farther to the right. Uh, I believe that we're one of the few states that had like an operating black shirts movement, for instance, in the modern era. So, you know, things like that. We get very strange political movements because it's just like a, it's a new creation. Uh, demographically, uh, we have been majority Anglo and German. Majority Germanic might be a better word just to cover more of the state up until about the 1990s to the 2000s or so, where we start to have uh, a lot of Hispanic immigration. Before the Hart-Seller Act was passed, though, and the uh, borders were unfortunately opened up by force of federal government, um, you saw a lot of Eastern European migration to Oklahoma. They were our biggest immigrant group up until 1965, uh, majority coming from Russia. So um, we just get things all over the place. We have a large German subsection. We have a large English subsection. Um, it's a really strange place. Hopefully that's a good enough overview. No, very much so. Um, you know, in addition, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of, you know, bring up, see if you have anything to say on these is like, um, the state seems to center around its, uh, two centers of commerce in uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma city. That seems to be the, the, the only, the, the, I don't want to say the only two, but like the, uh, the two kind of centers of, of what uh, Oklahoma is. I guess I'm uh, Tulsa being more on the, um, um, on I guess what would be called old Sequoia, uh, the sort of that, you know, identity that exists in, yep. the, in the eastern part of Oklahoma where with, with all the heavy native influence. And I guess Oklahoma City is more of the, um, uh, is more of the kind of Anglo capital for, for yes. uh, or, or am I, uh, am I oversimplifying? That, well, I mean, it's demographics. There's going to be simplifications everywhere, but that's a very fair statement. You see uh, Tulsa a bit farther to the east, a much closer to native territory, and you get a lot 
you can tell in the modern era that they're the commerce capitals because that's where the most wet, lukewarm politicians come from, for instance. Um, unfortunately, in my lifetime, um, actual Oklahoma has kind of just been relegated to the rural areas. Um, but not too long ago, we were probably one of the last states where our cities were genuinely American, if you will. Um, Tulsa has a lot more uh, relevant history than Oklahoma City does. Oklahoma City has a lot more importance in the modern era, though, um, both as a seat of power, uh, seat of commerce, uh, airport hub in some sense. So you, you get sort of these strategic and uh, power implications. Tulsa has a lot more history. Um, culturally, it has a lot better architecture, I would say. It's a lot less modern. Uh, you get some of that very classic American architecture from sort of the 1920s. Um, still there in some sense. They, it got tore down like a lot of classic architecture did, unfortunately. Um, you also get to see a lot of the effects of oil in Tulsa, which uh, in Oklahoma City you can still see that, but it's a lot more modern. Um, obviously, both cities are skyscraper cities now. They both have glass and steel, um, but you can still see a lot of the old uh, actual oil production facilities. They're mostly museums now. Um, a lot more authentic in Tulsa than they would be in Oklahoma City, where they've been shuffled around for purpose of economy, quite tragically. Yes, yes, and um, you know that's 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 interesting how the there's a kind of that dichotomy between the two cities. You know, Oklahoma City being almost this this like a uh, summoning of modernity over the plains, and um, uh, Tulsa being more of a, I guess as natural as as cities can be, more of a, a natural development. Before um, any of your viewers like freak out at me, it is worth noting. Uh, probably at this point, Tulsa has a lot more of an ethnic minority problem, so it's it's not. Don't over romanticize it. It's the modern day. Uh, we can't have anything nice, but once upon a time, that's sort of the that's how it looks. Yes, and uh, you know, Tulsa Tulsa being a part of that unique part of the state that uh that you know that's called a uh, Sequoia. Um, you know, wasn't Sequoia actually a uh, a proposed uh, a proposed state of uh, or a proposed state within a state yeah. um, or something like that that was you know almost like a, a native ethno state or something like that. So Oklahoma, I mentioned it being a very young state. It was only made so I believe 1907 or 1908. Forgive me for not knowing the exact date. It's around those years. Um, so beforehand, you have a lot of proposals about what to, this is where the Indians were replaced to, uh, going dating back to Andrew Jackson, the Indian Removal Act. So you have that population to deal with. Um, you have a very large black population to deal with because the Cherokee were one of the uh, were one of the main uh, slave traders in the region and one of the main people to utilize slave labor. So you have a uh, black population to deal with, and then you also have the white settler population, which is art, which artificially arrives late. So you know, it's not like it's not like typical colonization rhetoric they were forced out by the federal government from arriving until about the 1890s and on mass. Um, so Sequoia um, was one of the proposed solutions to these uh, demographic problems, not demographic racial at the time, I suppose they were a lot less worried about numbers and more about actual societal cohesion. Um, there were multiple plans. One was to have Oklahoma with a, a special sort of autonomous area in the Eastern half of the state generalizing it kind of goes on a diagonal but you can imagine in the eastern half of Oklahoma where the natives would have their own devolved powers um, down to the tribes but then also to like a basically their own assembly almost 
So basically it's a, as you said, a state within a state. It would add this really sort of weird fourth layer between state and local to where it's kind of like the Indian layer. The other solution was just to have split into two actual states um, where Sequoia would have codified into law that it would be a sort of ethno state for um, the natives. Some black groups also said that it would be a shared state between natives and blacks. I don't know how well that would have worked, uh, seeing how it, they ended up in, in the 1960s. They didn't know that at the time in the 1890s, though. I'm sure they probably had a lot more reasonable aspirations for proposing that. And then you had sort of the progressive, uh, and this is key because you get to see a lot of Oklahoma politics through this lens. The progressive solution was just to keep it all as one state and force everyone to either be segregated so you force everyone into one state, keep them separate, and you just don't deal with any sort of uh, devolutionary powers. Or you force everyone into one state and try to make it some sort of melting pot, uh, which is the left wing of the progressive movement that would later go on into a very strong and present socialist movement in the United or in the uh, Oklahoma state. So um, you get all of these different ideas that float around. Uh, Roosevelt was the president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt did not like the idea of splitting Oklahoma into two states. Uh, as you might know, he is a progressive himself. And looking at his contemporaries, you can make arguments that he was a more socially liberal progressive. Uh, he wasn't nearly as segregationist as uh, Woodrow Wilson might have been. Well, he was he a Nordicist, though. Uh, he was, yes. Was. So that, that's why I'm not outright brandishing him as the left wing. But he didn't f segregate the federal government. And he also didn't, you know... He wasn't like Taft either, which was like some sort of lukewarm middle ground where it was all economics. Um, he didn't like the idea of admitting two states, and he didn't like the idea of having devolved powers. He went along with a progressive plan. Left or right, it makes sense, because at the very least, he was a progressive, of uh, which at the time, something different than the modern era for whoever needs to mm. hear that in the audience. Um, uh, go read about them before listening to this, because it's going to get really confusing if you don't know that. Um, Oklahoma gets admitted to this, and the first thing that happens, not the first thing, because it goes just a little bit before, um, tribal powers get broken up, and federal laws get passed in order to try to weaken those clans, weaken their families, and weaken their property ownership, in order to sort of dissolve them into the state, and either allow them to be segregated, so you get the sort of, a you get the social engineering aspect there or to allow them to be integrated social engineering as well, but sort of for the different, for a different reason on the other side, um, you can make arguments as to which would be better or worse. I know which one I would side with. Um, but what this ends up doing is it very, it destroys a very traditional structure, uh, that kind of held these communities together. that They still haven't recovered from, uh, regardless of what you might think about either of the things that were, that I just talked about. Um, they haven't recovered. It wasn't that great of a thing. You know, so uh, you get things like that. So ultimately, it was a very ham-fisted move trying to make Oklahoma into one state. My personal opinion is they probably should have just left it at the ethno-state idea. <clears throat> we can obviously consequentially see that in the modern day, why that might be a good idea. But also at the time, it prevents a lot of uh, struggle that would be happening sort of at the state level. It probably would have been more peaceful, and you get to preserve these actual traditional societies that did exist here. Yeah. I, so, I, so backing up actually a little bit off of that, like to, to kind of get an idea of the traditional societies that were there to preserve. 
Yes. Um, 1828, I believe, is the year that the uh, Indian Removal Act was uh, was passed and enforced. Yep. Um, and uh, the it primarily targeted the uh, the five what's called the five civilized tribes that were living in the uh, in what was then the uh, the Deep South, what become or the what becomes known as the Cotton South, the uh, the yep. Old Southwest of Alabama, Mississippi, and uh, Western Georgia. Yes. Um, and these five tribes, uh, I think it's the uh, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the uh, Creek, and the um, um, Seminole. Yeah, the the Seminoles, um, kind of all split into into a bunch of different directions. The Seminoles, obviously, you know, anyone familiar with SEC football, uh, the Seminoles go down into Florida um, and hide out in the in the Everglades for a while. Um, the Chickasaw and the Choctaw and the Cherokee are kind of removed out to Oklahoma, uh, where they just kind of get plopped there. Um, I don't know. I think the Creek are moved there too, but, uh, but, and so that's kind of where, um, uh, that's kind of where their tribal centers, uh, still are to this day is the, uh, is, is that part of, uh, Eastern Oklahoma, um, in which the, uh, the Sequoia idea was then, uh, was then floated. Um, and they were there, they were there before the civil war, uh, back when it was called Indian territory. Right. Um, but, uh, before the civil war, how much, uh, how much white Anglo settlement was there in Oklahoma before the civil war? Very. Okay. So it did exist in small capacities. Um, but it was also a potentially dangerous place to be because, um, before the Civil War, uh, the Cherokee especially could actually enforce their integrity borderly. So um, th- there's always that to worry about. You basically, if you wanted to be protected, you kind of had to have been invited in. There was a lot of trade going on there, so that was also allowed. Um, but you don't see mass settlement until it's opened up to land runs. Um, obviously, they're very influenced, and this is why the Cherokee are important, because unlike every other ethnic minority that gets pushed upon you in your public schools and Google and all this other stuff, um, the Cherokee actually westernized on basically their own volition, and they showed a great propensity in being able to do that, um, because they had a spoken language. They actually made, made a written language, and they were very friendly towards, at first, the British government, and then later the United States government, got damaged relationship-wise whenever they were removed, but then when they got their territory, um, they became very ingratiated to sort of the uh, southern section of the country, uh, to use their sectionalism theory. So so actually, real quick, uh, that's where the name of the state Sequoia comes from, because the uh, the native Sequoia, I don't know if he was a chief, his, uh, but he uh, does one of these remarkable acts of genius in which he kind of writes this entire language. He, he just creates an alphabet for this language just out of nothing. And, uh, and that's where the, the written Cherokee language comes from. Right. And um, they were also unique, um, because, and th- this is why they also got ingratiated the southern economic section. Um, they were slave-owning, and they very much favored the plantation landed gentry system, uh, both on social grounds for uh, you know, traditional uh, authority, but also for economic reasons as well, as you would see in other parts of the South, because we actually were a very agricultural state. So um, much like the South as well, 
uh, they get a bad rap in history books nowadays. They get made out to be sort of demonic at this point in time, but then whenever uh, after the Civil War they become the oppressed minority group, in actuality, like most of the South, they treated slaves fine for a variety of reasons. And you can see that with what the slaves themselves would later recall. So they yeah. they were civilized. The five civilized tribes is not like some sort of paused name that just gets thrown at them. Uh, the Cherokee, at the very least, did uh, earn it. Mm. Yeah, and so that kind of actually brings us into the um, um, into the war between the states, um, which Oklahoma was not one of those states. It was it was still very much this uh, vaguely defined kind of area um, where no one was really sure where Indian territory like. They, they knew where it began in the borders of Texas and the like, but no one was really sure where it ended. It kind of melded into the rest of the Great Plains. And as you said, these uh, the natives, particularly the Cherokee, uh, had this uh, investment in the slaveholding system. So come the war between the states, the, you know, the Cherokee side are very, very obviously are going to, you know, if they have to pick a side, it's, it's obvious which side that they were going to pick. Right. And, um, they actually, I believe, they have a uh, they have a somewhat notable performance during the war. Um, I believe the only the only general officer on either side of uh, of of native extraction was uh, was Brigadier General Stan Waddy of I think the first Cherokee Cavalry Regiment is is that also, also the last to surrender. Yeah, usually why he gets mentioned. Um, going back to why they joined uh, the South, though. Um, because not only is there the economic interest and the social interest, like we said, they have the slave system, um, but there was also a very strong distrust by this time of the federal government, not militantly so necessarily, but whenever another government comes along that is uh, founded primarily for autonomy reasons, you know, calling themselves a confederacy as, a, as opposed to a federal tyranny, obviously the natives are going to side with that one, not just because they're economically ingrained to them, but also because uh, the system of government would be favorable to them and it, it ensures that they would be able to stay there and that would be their land. They, they could have integrity at some in some sense. Um, whether or not the South would deliver on that is up for your guys' speculation because we obviously never got to see that happen. Um, but they were very fierce fighters for the South. Yeah, I'm actually... I'm, uh, I'm drawn to recall this one instance at the uh, the battle of elkhorn tavern which occurs in arkansas in uh, 1862 yep. um i believe uh, general general van dorn was in command of the uh, confederate army and uh, general franz siegel uh was in command of the uh, or i don't think he was in i don't know if he was in overall command um, but he was one of the generals on the field there for the union side and um, this Confederate army, like most Confederate armies were, was just kind of a mishmash of all sorts of, of irregulars that they kind of threw together in regiments, yeah. you know, bushwhackers from the Ozarks and um, um, and Texans. And uh, most notably, a contingent of Cherokee, uh, you know, with tomahawks and, and hand and muskets and all that from the uh, from the Indian territories. Right. And uh, the Battle of Elkhorn Tavern, uh, they they charge this uh, this Union regiment, you know, with their war cries and, and you know, emblazoning their hatchets and all of that. And the uh, you know, I was reading I, I get this from Shelby Foote and, um, uh, you know, Shelby Foote's recalling this instance. And uh, Shelby Foote says, uh, 
none of them signed up for any of this. And so they uh, turned tail and ran uh, from this uh, crowd of marauding uh, bloodthirsty red savages. And actually one of the reasons that General Van Dorn uh, lost that battle thing, the Battle of Elkhorn Tavern is, um, um, as I say, with pretty much every other, you know, Confederate engagement throughout the entire Civil War, which could just define the entirety of the, the South's involvement in the Civil War, is with uh, three words, initially very successful. Um, yeah. And that is that is the uh, that was General Van Dorn at the Battle of Elkhorn Tavern, particularly like a lot of a lot of damage was done initially and then it just petered out. And that's kind of yeah. that's but, you know, I'm getting getting a bit far afield here. But um, well, if it's yes, worth it, um, I I know it. I I believe it would be the Union name, the Battle of Pea Ridge. Um mm which uh, that does get talked about at the very least by the older parts of our population that actually know history, uh, as that is. Uh, I remember my great-grandmother uh, oftentimes planned to take me out there before she passed away. So, like, th this is a thing. It's not like, a, it's, not like it's been forgotten about. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. And, um, you know, General, General Wadi, uh, you know, most of the war he spent uh, raiding Union uh, Union uh, supply lines around in the Western Theater. Um, yep. He, you know, they fought war very similarly to how the Cherokees had always fought war, which is in this almost kind of Bronze Age sort of uh, uh, what we I don't I wouldn't necessarily call it guerrilla tactics, but this sort of like warband raider right style of uh, style of warfare. And um, um, you know, you said he was the last to surrender. Um, you know, with, with, with his surrendering, um, how long, how long, you know, between General Wadi kind of, uh, kind of surrendering the, uh, the Indian territory and, um, this massive influx of these, uh, white settlers coming in, in the latter half of the 19th century, how, how much time, how much turnaround is that from the war to, uh, the, like the land rent land runs 30 years, give or take. Mm. Um, yeah, 30 years, give or take. Because 1890s is about when you would say, um, like, obviously you get more white influx after the land runs and after statehood, but um, the West officially closes, if I remember correctly, late 1890, or maybe it's early, in that decade. So 30 years, give or take. Mm -hmm. so, so, okay. So what's going on? What's going on in that 30 years between all these these land runs and the, uh, and the Cherokees throwing down so, their arms? Is it just typical wild west kind of <laughs> um tumbleweeds rolling around so chair we obviously have indian civilization there so it's already been settled uh the wild west era doesn't necessarily get to that part of the state uh you do get to see that whenever the land runs happen but even then it's only for like a few years like it never it's not like the decades long settling that you get in the other states um after the civil war Obviously, at the presidency of Grant, you get a bunch of infrastructure focus, so railroads, uh, mineral rights, all this other, basically industrialization focus. Um, and that, that's not just me being an economist focusing on the economy. That's just what dominated the time frame. Um, if you know Grant's presidency, it almost got sunk over infrastructure-related scandals. So Oklahoma is no different, but we aren't the main focus of all of this. Most of the uh, major railroads did not impact our state as much as other states, so it doesn't get much focus on the national scale. 
Um, and generally the 18, the rest of the 1860s, early 1870s are kind of seen as a very sort of just uneventful period, which is not necessarily true. Um, things did happen, but they're not relevant to any greater thing happening. Hmm. Uh, you get a lot of resentment post-Civil War among the natives, who now vehemently dislike the federal government, um, especially now that uh, when you hear the stereotype about the federal government breaking treaties, usually you hear about sort of the Dakotas and gold mines. Uh, you can also see that here, uh, where over the course of these 30 years, between the West closing and the end of the Civil War, um, the federal government will partition away land that it had, which it had perpetually promised to these native tribes. Um, and they'd done very well with it, obviously, given by the fact that the South was willing to respect them. You know, you don't just see them allying with any native tribe that they can get their hands on during the war. Um, so they, the federal government partitions away these lands. They partition away land rights. And they progressively um, just section off parts of the state and opens them up to settlement. Um, so they don't just take the whole Indian territory and in one time frame say, all right, the whole thing's open, just take the whole state. They uh, section off parts, and then while they section off parts for settlement and staking claims and all this other stuff that you would see in the rest of the West, um, what you see is the federal government uh, will do what I mentioned earlier, and they will weaken the hold that the natives had on their lands. Uh, you can potentially be this as punishment for siding with the wrong side. If I remember correctly, only one of the major tribes in Oklahoma sided with the Union just to give perspective. So it was a very Confederate state, even though it was all natives, uh, basically, uh, for anything relevant at this point in time. Punishment, necessity, Nordicism, potentially, when we get there, all these reasons could come into play, but uh, their promises do get violated. Uh, once again, you can make arguments, depending on your uh, ideological views, whether or not justified. I'm sure if you have a Nietzschean sort of will to power, then treaties aren't necessarily the most important thing. Um, so that's what happens in the first half of that little, uh, interlude. And the second half, things really start to heat up, um, sort of, let's say like 1875 to 1890 or so, because that's where you start seeing seeds getting planted for socialist movements that would come later, the progressive movement that would come later. And you also start seeing, um, the groundwork being laid for the education system and the reservation system that most people would recognize in Oklahoma today, the education system being a lot older and being phased out now, uh, but you still can see it. The buildings haven't gone away and neither have a lot of the, uh, there are some people that still have it in living memory. <clears throat> um, what they would do, um, because the natives were determined not to be westernized and civilized enough. Remember, this is a, radical, Republican-controlled, very unionist idea. Um, the South fought alongside them. Um, and then we discussed that at the top of this, they made their own alphabet. They had their own written language. Uh, they had their own architecture as well, which I forgot to mention. Um, union determined, or the Congress determined, uh, that they were not civilized enough, and they had to be taken to schools and forcefully westernized, as if they were any other Great Plains tribe. Um, didn't go over well, and it caused a lot of syncretism. So there were still native religions around at this time. They weren't all Christianized, depending on the tribe. Um, the Cherokee, if I remember correctly, were very early on uh, converted to Christianity, but others weren't. 
sort of in the same league as the Cherokee, not as big, so they don't get the name drop as often. Um, these schools were a complete disaster, not because of their intentions necessarily. We can discuss those at a different point in time, I'm sure. Um, but just looking at the outcomes, uh, they produce a sort of synchronized religion where Christianity and the native religion just gets mixed together. And they like adopt this sort of weird, um, the basically universalist view that these native gods were just manifestations of the Trinity and all this other stuff. Uh, things that no side prior would say is licit. Um, you also see a lot of resentment getting built just from a very young age um, because these weren't, you know, these weren't the uh, most well-intentioned of schools. Um, you get a lot of uh, stories of brutality coming out of them. Um, and you can say some of it was probably media when we get to the sort of the later era. But in the uh, earlier implementations, they aren't the best. So it breeds resentment. It basically turns into a huge ethnic conflict where there previously might have been one. But now there definitely was one, and it was happening basically at these school grounds. Um, so that's kind of what's building up. And then you get these uh, land rushes. Uh, the entire state gets opened, and the Indian tribes and collective ownership gets dissolved entirely. It's no longer a legal entity, and it's all the land holdings are devolved down to individual Indians. In part, and this is uh, directly at the hands of the progressive movement, one of their... Uh, earlier policy decisions, if I remember correctly, that they were able to actually pass was in Indian territory. Um, so when you later go on to see the progressive era in the 1910s going into the 20s, uh, this is kind of where they start in the 1890s is focusing on Indian territory, um, for better or worse. And then this is when the state kind of enters its majority Anglo phase. We're kind of out of the native part of history. All right, and uh, and with that first half, I am going to need to uh, I'm <laughs> going to need to go uh, take a break real quick. Um, we will be right back. All right, welcome back uh, after a short break uh, after the uh, the first half of Oklahoma's uh, not very long but um, um, eventful history. Uh, we are now getting into the um, uh, into the second half, as you could call it. Um, which centers around uh, Sooners, oil, and progressives. I suppose is the best yeah. way to best way to describe it. That's a great uh, way to describe it. Yeah. So um, um so we've um uh, we the Indians are getting put into schools. All right, the state's been opened up to Anglo settlement. Um, you've got people from you know, all across the country, you know, taking advantage of this basically offer of free land. Yep. Uh, you just need to, you just need to provide like, I don't know what the requirements for it, but you know, they're, you know, just, you show up with your horses and your, and your homesteading equipment and you just claim your plot of land. Yep. Um, where are these, uh, where are these land grabbers, um, coming from yeah where are they coming from are they coming from texas are they coming from the uh, midwest are they coming so, from the south where are they coming from you can see culturally to this day and you can probably see it in demographics though i don't have a demographic map on hand right now though i do recall seeing seeing one i have memory of one um <clears throat> north middle of this of the state gets settled by germans from the midwest um, and it has a very Germanic population outside the natives. You, basically, for all this, you can say, and the natives. Um, the South ends up settling the South 
southeast and the southwest uh, with sort of like a middle bit and the rest of the country being majority English in some capacity. Um, so I say English, northern, right? Because you get the sort of southern uh, culture and heritage. Um, but that's not really what settles the northeast and the rest of sort of like the heart of the country. So um, that's kind of what the makeup looks like to some extent. You get little holdouts of Spanish, little holdouts of French. Um, overall, the state is majority English and descent at this point in time, if I remember correctly, with a large plurality. No, that's not a right word. A large subsection of Germans and then Indians. So that's about right. it. Like, I'm sure I'm missing a couple of things for now, but at the time of the land run, you don't yet have immigration from Eastern Europe. Um, you don't have a, you don't have a very big Southern European contingency at all, ever, I don't think. <clears throat> and I don't think I'm missing anything else because we also didn't have Asian or African immigration outside okay. of the slave population. So, so, so okay, so, so you have all of these... Um just kind of as ancillary to the uh, to the wider westward uh, settlement that's going on in the country, um, these land runs going into Oklahoma. Yes. The, the the unique thing about it is that there wasn't a lot of, um, in Oklahoma at least comparatively, there wasn't a lot of warfare with the natives uh, because that, that battle had been done and fought uh, about 70 years prior uh, at this point. But... Um, you know, the, the, the settling was very largely nonviolent. I'm sure you have violence on the reservations and between yeah. tribes and over disputes and all this other stuff, but. Um, Nothing like the rest of the West. Yes, but where, where, where things really start to pick up is when, um, uh, you know, come the late, the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, people start discovering oil yes. in and around Oklahoma, particularly around the area of Tulsa. How about, how about we go into that? Yeah. So, um, Skipping ahead just a little bit, and I'm sure we can come back to a few things. Um, you have the economic incentives to come to Oklahoma. At first, it's land, and then obviously agricultural capacity when the land starts to actually prove itself in most parts of the uh, of the state. Sorry, um, and then later, um, whenever oil becomes an actual input in a lot of things, there's a big necessity for it. Wouldn't you know? We strike oil, much similar to how you strike oil in Texas around this time. Um, the only issue is a lot of this oil is under lands owned by native individuals. Um, if you remember uh, correctly from a little bit ago, uh, tribal ownership is mostly dissolved. <clears throat> Some of it would be reinstated later, but not yet. Uh, they're still firmly under sort of progressive social structure. So natives own the oil lands. Hilariously, on the uh, sort of uh, demographic level, this leads to an influx of lawyers um, where uh, there are tales to where some towns supposedly would have more lawyers than anything else in them. Um, so this is what it leads to. Um, this was, uh, they weren't forcefully removed off of their land. Uh, usually the main method was to, if you take their view, swindle them out of their land or purchase the land is the other view. Um, obviously history is a set of competing narratives and stories. Those are both your stories to run with. Um, so you get deceit here and there, but you also get very fine deals here and there as well. Um, you get a lot of foul play in some cases where some people get poisoned and murdered 
um, that becomes a very big thing in the Osage. There was a, there was a, yeah, there was a, no, uh, not a novel, but like one of these pop history books that I was given by a friend of mine um, called, I think, Killers of the, Killers of the Summer Moon or something like that, but, um, or Killers of the, the Blood Moon, I don't, I don't know, but it was about the, uh, the Osage murders. Yes. Um, so that's a, that's a unique thing. That's an interesting thing. Like, uh, cause if, if I remember correctly, the Osage tribe were, you know, per capita, they were the wealthiest ethnicity in yep. the United States at the time. Um, like almost every single member of the tribe was like a millionaire or right. equivalent. Yes. So, um, something that the federal government shot itself in the foot with, obviously they didn't know at the time, uh, was by guaranteeing these land rights to what they thought were agricultural lands. They thought they were just keeping the natives right there. It'd be, you know, easy to deal with they're just going to be farmers etc cetera, etc cetera. they can join us and they gave very very uh generous terms in terms of uh land rights whenever they did this um most people thinking well we're never going to have to need this it's just farmland in oklahoma when they strike oil these natives basically just have full rights to it and they also have guarantees by the state or by the government rather um, so they have this protection offered to them. And this is also uh, being struck and excavated during first World War One. Very large demand for oil, gasoline, uh, fuel. And then later during the Roaring Twenties, where you get even larger sustained need for all of this because of the, in the advent of the automobile becoming a consumer good instead of a luxury good. Uh, on top of other things, air travel becoming a thing. Uh, on the commercial level, um, you also get uh, more military in, uh, inventions that do need uh, oil-derived fuel as opposed to things like coal. So navies get modernized uh, much uh, much more across the board instead of just the big great powers. So um, you have that to deal with. Oil, high demand, price is very high. You can't get very much of it because the excavation techniques are still very primitive at this point in time. So it's a great time to be in the Osage tribe. And you are right. Uh, by some estimates, they were the richest ethnic group in the United States at this point in time. So what happens? They don't just sit on it. Uh, on they get uh, they mess around with it. So like I mentioned, you have the lawyer influx. Um, a lot of them were placed under handlers under progressive law, uh, where by law the natives were determined not to be mentally sufficient to make their own deals at some point in time. So they would be placed under an Anglo, usually an Anglo handler, who would then act as a mediary where they had a lot more control than a normal mediary would. So uh, basically, without forcing them off land formally, without conquering them, and without like actually writing down the deals, uh, they lose a lot of the access to the soil. And as such, their fortune eventually dries up. Uh, while they have it, though, they were very generous patrons, uh, and they end up building a lot of uh, a lot of infrastructure, business, and investment in Tulsa would be one of the main hubs, and then also areas surrounding that uh, the Osage. So agricultural uh, endeavors would also get a lot of money. Uh, they weren't idiots, you know; they didn't just throw it under the mattress. So um, you get that they get something get murdered. Um, by law, there are a lot of very nasty things done. Um, there's just something 
very inherent in, in me that just finds it disgusting that the federal government would appoint basically an overseer that makes all of your deals for you. Um, I like we're probably on our way to that now, which is why it's so disgusting to me on a very visceral level. Um, so that's what happens to them in particular. So, okay. So, you know, the, during the time of this oil boom that's going on in Oklahoma, um, Oklahoma, I believe, gets admitted to statehood part of the way during this, uh, over the course of this oil boom, or at least right at the very beginning of it. Um, And, um, you know, and as you mentioned earlier, this is because of the large influx of progressives. So, so let's get into that a little bit. What what were the, what were the progressives doing with, um, um, with Oklahoma? You said they wrote the constitution from scratch. Yeah. So, um, obviously Oklahoma, very young state, they need a constitution in order to be admitted into the union. Um, I don't think we've ever had a scenario where we admitted a state that didn't have like a system of government ready to just be implemented as soon as they got into the, into statehood. Um, so all those, uh, all the influx of Anglos, um, save for a lot of the Southerners and the Germans, uh, were very progressive oriented. Um, so 1890, we don't yet have like the full formed progressive movement, but it's the same kinds of people that would later go on to you know, join the progressive party when Roosevelt would make his third party run. Uh, they're the same kind of people that would potentially support Woodrow Wilson whenever World War One and the propaganda machine gets fired up, things along those lines. So these are the people that write the constitution for the state of Oklahoma. And I mentioned at the start that we get sort of like a leftist iteration of the progressives. We don't necessarily get sort of like the Southerner ideal where they're talking about the landed gentry, segregation, all the other stuff, the more cultural side. We get the economic side uh, where they mandate that a certain portion of the state's budget, a fixed percent or a fixed percentage of the budget has to always go to state schooling. Um, we also get a bunch of other very redistributive measures. Uh, we had a very, very progressive, which is euphemistic for high uh, sales and income tax. Um, so they took something that could have been very uh, either very frontier like and just had a very sort of frontier government that was uh, basically could have just been non-intrusive or they could have taken a very Southern government. And instead they opted for almost a Yankee government that was just, we still have it today. And this has long reaching consequences as well Uh, by giving uh, state schooling such a great portion of the budget and actually giving them room in the constitution to such a degree, um, this will give rise to teachers unions, and they are still very much a big player in Oklahoma politics today, um, where they are a political group to where if you are in power, you have to deal with them one way or another, either friendly or foley. So that's interesting how, um, you know, Oklahoma was kind of this, um, this almost experiment in the, uh, in the progressive ideal, not, not like, you know, attempting to, uh, shape a pre-existing body of law to the uh, to the progressive idea but rather just almost formulating this almost uh this this state this uh this municipality within the within the federal project based entirely upon the the views of the uh, progressive movement that's very interesting yeah 
Um, and I'm sure I'm sure that had something to do with the um, with the dispropriations that occurred uh, during the oil boom. And I'm sure it also had to do with uh, a lot of a lot of what happened with, uh, you know, later on past the 1920s into the New Deal era. I'm sure that uh, that 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 affected how the New Deal came to Oklahoma. Um, right. There's a particular figure that you wanted to talk about. Um, uh believe he was a he was governor wasn't he he was governor. Um, before we moved to him uh mm. just to sort of lay the groundwork for things that will come up it wasn't just progressives they were just the ones that got power and were the most influential um our sort of populist movement when we did get railroads and uh farmers actually started to organize uh, our more populist movement turned very socialistic and the socialist party had a very real presence in oklahoma um and I think we also had a lot of communist cells whenever the Communist Party became a thing later. But we'll we'll get there to that specific one. Mm. Um, and then you also get the question of segregation. Uh, was uh, we got segregation in law eventually? There was deliberation and debate, um, but it it was originally intended, I think, and I could be wrong. This could have just been like an oversimplification that I came across. I think they intended to leave it open for debate and deliberation like other issues in American history. Um, but the segregationists almost immediately won out and we got very Southern looking laws um, later. Like this isn't in the original constitution necessarily, especially not what would effectively be implemented. These came afterwards. Um, so this, uh, it wasn't all just sort of, uh, lefty projection for Oklahoma. We also had a very sort of rightist movement that, did do things, bringing us to Alfalfa Bill Murray. So, um, yeah, so uh, Governor uh, William H. Murray, uh, nicknamed Alfalfa Bill, he was the, um, um, he had a kind of a long sort of a storied career. He's one of these typical kind of, you know, Great Plains lawyer types that you'll see in the, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, these kind of, um, um, these uh how do how do i call them i guess i guess cowboy lawyers is a good way to call it you know initially born in texas um gets very active in the initially in the democratic party all in all these uh populist movements um you know i think he actually was a um um, he was a representative for the uh for the chickasaw during the um um, during the constitutional convention of oklahoma Yes, he worked um, with natives, and he had a great uh, sympathy for them, uh, to some respect. Um, and if I remember correctly, I think he pushed once upon a time for actually splitting the state into Sequoia and Oklahoma. Mm. So um, that that's kind of where he's coming from. Uh, very established figure. He comes from a political dynasty. Or his family would become a political dynasty in Oklahoma until I believe his son kind of just ruined it by being a very sort of libertine figure, uh, very ineffective, a drunk, uh, divorce, and all this other stuff while in office. So that and that would be the 1950s, not the best look. Uh, anyways, it, the family was very powerful for a long time, and I think they might still be around somewhere. Like I don't think they completely lost power. They just didn't get back to the uh, governorship with nearly as much gusto. Um, so Alfalfa Bill will get elected. Basically, uh, the only part of his term that matters is during the Great Depression when it's in full swing. Uh, he sets a record for the amount of times that the Oklahoma National Guard has been used. 
and I think he might be up there just at all in the country for people that have just mobilized the National Guard um, because I, he did so in well into the double digits. And most of the time, because he didn't have an easy political way to nationalize oil industries, which was his policy to fix the Great Depression in Oklahoma, was to control the oil companies. He couldn't just nationalize it outright. So what he did was he mobilized the National Guard, sent them to the oil fields, and just mandated you can produce this much in an attempt to lower the oil supply, lower the oil supply, keep prices higher, you know, keep the keep the uh, companies from going downward, um, things like that. You can kind of guess the knock-on effects of that. Trying to keep wages higher without just trying to make a New Deal-like policy where they just uh, raise a minimum wage or something. So. He uses the National Guard for that. Um, he uses it to restore order a couple of times in a few places that were getting a bit rowdy or uppity, if you will. Um, we never get we never get violence that's memorable or uh, necessary to talk about, really, and it's kind of just boring. Uh, there's nothing uh, integral to talk about there. He just uses it to restore order and keep Oklahoma from falling apart. And he also does something that he probably didn't expect it, to go down the way it did uh, because he or he uh, mobilized the National Guard uh, and he tried to threaten Texas over a toll bridge uh, between the border of Oklahoma and Texas. And this would cause a very big split between obviously the politics of Oklahoma and Texas, but also the people. Uh, it creates sort of a nationalistic fervor. And this is the first time that you sort of see a an Oklahoma identity um, that just arises. And it's almost organic. It's not like he mandated in schools that Oklahomanism had to be taught. He didn't, uh, there wasn't an intellectual movement. He just mobilized the National Guard, went against the very big and established state to our southern border. And I, it's escaping me who won because it's like, that's not usually the consequence that anyone focuses on was who got the bridge in the end. Like uh, usually that's just like a fun historical fact that you'd see in like the bottom of like a fifth grader's textbook. Um, but the, the main important thing here is that there's an Oklahoman identity. Because as we mentioned, it's a very young state, very new, full of settlers from different parts of the country. Uh, you don't necessarily get the state identity that you would get in Virginia or Alabama or South Carolina or, you know, even I'm sure even Massachusetts and its Puritan heritage would probably have more of an identity than Oklahoma had before this. Um, so he actually creates an identity. Uh, in a very non-artificial way, I would argue. Because like like I said, you can just like have an intellectual movement and start mandating that gets taught in schools and try to raise a generation thinking that's true. But this is an actual event with military force backed up behind it and people willingly flock to it. So I would argue it's a very natural development, a, a stroke of genius where there wasn't necessarily meant to be genius at. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about that because the uh, Oklahoma National Guard uh, later incarnated as the 45th Infantry Division would go on and yes. serve and uh, serve with distinction in the European theater of operations being commended by uh, General Patton himself. I actually have uh, had a couple of friends I met from the uh, from the 45th Infantry Division when I was in my uh, previous life. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Governor Murray, he very much did. Uh, he, he dealt with a 
a bad situation for lack of a better word. I mean, he was able to, um, uh, he was able to withstand both the depression and the dust bowl and the uh, initial failure of the new deal within Oklahoma while, you know, almost single-handedly keeping the government from collapsing. And he still had enough energy to uh, try to kind of uh, use Huey Long as a, uh, as a uh, pawn in his own uh, little scheming games with the democratic party convention. Right. Uh, which which Governor Long talks about in one of his memoirs. Um, so, uh, just quick on that note, um, Alfalfa Bill did try to go for a national campaign once upon a time. Uh, this isn't going up to YouTube, is it? I, I don't, Can I like, okay, good. So um, his campaign slogan at the state level and then later at the national level uh, was against carpetbaggers, coons, and corporations, the latter of which was uh, more reflective of uh, Jewish interests rather than big business that you would later see with later incarnations of Southern populism. Um, so he hits basically all the points of the Southern Democratic Party. Uh, not yet the Dixiecrats, uh, still under one big tent for some, somehow it's honestly amazing that it lasted so long historically. Um, and he tries to challenge FDR's nomination. Uh, he meets with Huey Long a couple of times. And he tries to play kingmaker, if I remember correctly, because he wasn't necessarily looking to win. Uh, that's a thing that you will get in, Oklahoma, or in American politics quite a lot, is people will run not necessarily with the intention to win, but to influence the inevitable outcome. That's what I believe uh, Wallace did in 68. Yeah. We'll get there, because the, he, that comes into the demographics we discussed earlier. Uh, you can still see that in elections, uh, the different parts of the state getting sold by different groups. Um, anyways... Alfalfa Bill tries to play kingmaker with the kingfish. Uh, and I, I kind of forget how it went down because it's not relevant to Oklahoma history. And that's usually where I come across Alfalfa Bill. Well, Long, Long saw through it like he always does. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, because he's usually the one doing it. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, so Alfalfa Bill, he becomes sort of the figurehead or the popular perception of the conservative coalition uh, that sort of dominated Congress and the House at this point in time, uh, the House and the Senate, rather, in Congress, uh, as opposition to FDR. Because while uh, Murray supported parts of the New Deal, uh, he also saw parts of it going way too far. And he would argue that it was a grave overreach of uh, federal power into the, uh, into the power of states. And you can kind of see here, almost, he's setting the stage for the 1948 Dixiecratic revolt against the Democratic Party. Um, because a lot of the same rhetoric gets used here by Alfalfa Bill, talking about FDR and the New Deal. Uh, whereas a lot of Dixiecrats that would later uh, revolt, some of them didn't even necessarily oppose FDR. It was usually a lot of uh, talk of racial integration that got them to flip um, in opposition to people like Harry Truman much more integrationist than FDR was, uh, sort of FDR being more pragmatic, quote unquote, than Truman was. Um, so Murray, at its very core, kind of articulates this uh, coming Dixiecratic wave across the South uh, before even most of the Dixiecrats that were around at this time that would later revolt would come to those opinions and actually formulate them. Uh, th this is why he is important on sort of the national scale. So, okay, well, that's, yeah, it's an, and it's interesting to see that going forward, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, Murray being one of these several uh, 
you know, old established democratic figures that kind of gave the Dixiecrat movement. It's sort of, it's sort of lifeblood. Another one of these was, um, was uh, Cactus Jack, uh, yeah. John Nance Garner. Uh, another one being, um, uh, you know, the birds in Virginia and yeah. um, all of these, these old democratic, uh, you know, I guess even Strom Thurmond, the, the, the figurehead uh, from, uh, from South Carolina. Um, and so let's, let's, I'll tell you what, we, we, we've done a pretty decent overview of, you know, the most of, uh, most of what Oklahoma history and, uh, the consequences of such, but let's, let's kind of finish this out by talking about Oklahoma and the latter half of the, uh, yes. the 20th century, particularly right. around with the, the Wallace campaigns and the, uh, and desegregation into that. Right. And, um, uh, then, then we'll finish it up. How, how's that sound? Sounds great. Um, Last thing to mention with the Dixiecrats, uh, obviously they hold their convention in Oklahoma City. And if you read their platform, it's very lackluster. Like you might expect if they were going to revolt, they would have like a full-fledged thing. But it's just literally talking about states' rights, the whole thing. It's it's hilariously just uh, shallow. Uh, Wallace, 1968. um, He runs a campaign against Richard M. Nixon and against Hubert Humphrey which is sort of the Johnson wing of the Democratic Party, the lo- a very left wing, very liberal, very integrationist, very civil rights oriented. The Democratic Party at this time is not fully on board with Johnson. Uh, Johnson himself technically being a Southern Democrat, uh, completely uh, just spites his that part of the party that he once played in, that he was once a leader of in some cases, um, and joins with the civil rights movements in the North. Um, this leaves the sort of a southerner wing to George Corey Wallace. Um, George Wallace uh, would go on to carry parts of the South. And if you look by the county, it's even more uh, astounding. He's one of the more successful third party campaigns in the United, in the United States history. Um, his campaign manager uh, going by the name of Tom, Turn- Tom Turnipseed, if you don't know. Uh, so. Don't look into him. Uh, the latter half of his life story is very disappointing. I'd rather not have people know about that part. But um, so Wallace in Oklahoma, just to go back to that demographics point, just to show it wasn't fluff, will carry the parts that the South settled. So Wallace wins southeast and sort of southwest Oklahoma to a degree, uh, carrying a plurality in some parts and just a majority in other parts. Um, and let's see. And overall, nationally, of course, his campaign was just a few percentage points off of uh, winning, uh, I believe it was was Kentucky, I believe, uh, which would have given him enough electoral votes to uh, throw the election to the House, where he would have had very strong negotiating power to force Richard Nixon into a very hardline segregationist stance uh, to appease the uh, Southern Democratic uh, bloc. Um, Oklahoma was segregationist. Uh, as we discussed, they got laws in place uh, after the con- after the Constitution was approved. Um, Alpha Alpha Bill, obviously very segregationist, uh, very sort of traditional in that Southern tradition. Um, and we also produced quite a lot of very fervent segregationists that would live long past this point in American politics, uh, some of them dying just recently. Uh, so not inconsequential on the national stage either. We get a lot of ideologues, a lot of newscasters, a lot of uh, public figures, senators uh, that would go on to fight in this on the southern side. Um, We also have a very 
integrationist Republican Party to match. Uh, so we get a lot of civil rights activism, especially in Tulsa. Um, they would play off uh, race riots that happened in the 20s in Tulsa. Uh, they would play up a lot of these sort of Indian uh, conflicts as well, as if the as if their progenitors weren't the ones that caused it, which is my eternal struggle against the GOP. So um, you have that. The Socialist Party has a, uh, ever since the Great Depression, has a foothold in Oklahoma. Uh, they never outright win counties and they never win the popular vote, but they do start showing up on the ballot in quite a lot of places, uh, mostly owing to the agricultural heritage of Oklahoma. Uh, the Grange, uh, or Grange, however you might pronounce it, it never had as strong of a hold here as it did in other states uh, that you might find in the Great Plains in the Midwest, but it was still here. And it gave rise to the Socialist Party whenever it formalized. This also comes up in the Civil Rights era and the latter half of uh, this, and the latter half of the 1900s, um, mostly because obviously the socialists aren't just economically oriented; they're also completely left on social issues in the United States, at least. Um, Communist Party blocks also start to form. Uh, this starts happening in the 50s, but it goes on well into the 60s and 70s. And in fact, Oklahoma becomes. Uh, Obviously, the Communist Party never gained much traction in the popular consciousness, uh, but it becomes one of the stronger states for the Communist Party, hilariously enough. Obviously, it's competing with places like New York, which it's never going to be Illinois, California, but Oklahoma is an outlier among some of the more communist-supporting states, at least by organization. Um, and then also, you get counters to that. Um, so once the Civil Rights Act is eventually forced and integration is forced and then eventually you get busing, affirmative action, uh, all these other, basically the culture war taken to different areas that's not just the law itself. Um, you get black shirt movements that will become a thing, probably less popular than the Communist Party. Like they're never a major point in Oklahoma history. They're kind of just a footnote. Um, you get very strong uh, clan representation for quite a while. Uh, they were a player. And you also get very strong um, white separatist groups, I think you would call them. I think that's a fair characterization. Um, and this is where the Native history might come into play, because one Francis Parker Yaki, one of the very famous photographs of him, is wearing one of the Native headdresses and meeting with the Native, uh, some of the Native councils here. Uh, I don't know if you know about that photograph. Um, Not where, at all. So these uh, sort of more fascist aligned movements, uh, if you look into them, they have a very great admiration for the American Indian. Um, if I remember correctly, Yaki at this point in time, he might have I'm a Yaki expert, so he could have changed his opinion or this could have been a change. Um, very in line with some of his uh, contemporaries, uh, they had a respect for the American Indian, especially as a warrior caste. Mm. Um, which you can see for basically most of their history, well, and that's and that's obvious, especially if you look at the uh, the original unit patch of the forty fifth Infantry Division, yes. which is a uh, a golden swastika, which was later changed. Um, well, Ryan, I want to thank you very much for coming on, and I appreciate you um uh, you know extrapolating at length about this uh, this very very strange little state. It's 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 relevant in its irrelevance, if that if that makes sense. You know, yeah, it's 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 it's, 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 it's it's kind of a it's unique 
in how it's you know split between the uh it's 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 a really extreme place i'm guessing um in terms of uh, in terms of politics at least more so than the rest of the country and yet it's you know i don't know i feel like i feel like it i feel like it has a I feel like more is to come out of it you know you can't have a place with uh with not a lot happening in it for so long i think i think there will be stuff coming out of oklahoma probably um I'm not going to say that now is like any major semblance, but it is an indicator um, where um, we are one of the few states where the governor actually fought back against vaccine mandates. That's true. Yeah. Roe v. Wade uh, unconstitutionally, technically, because we passed a very, very restrictive measurements right now, uh, while it still has not been struck down, if it indeed will be. Um, so you also have that. Um, once again, not necessarily to show like any sort of ideological coherence or uh, uh, deepness, but just sort of a, as it is a rebellious state that you could potentially put alongside Florida at one, uh, maybe some point in the future. Very interesting. And I think there's a, there's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to expect out of that if things start going that way. Ryan, do you have anything you'd like to shill before uh, we call it a night here? Yes, um, my YouTube channel, uh, Ryan Turnipseed, and I'm probably going to be uploading uh, my, all of my videos to all the alternate webs uh, websites as well, so it's not just on YouTube. Um, I, I'm active there. I am coming out with a series now on right-wing organization. Um, if you were at the American event, you might remember me talking about it to pitch the idea. Um, we had a lot of good criticism and a lot of good feedback from it, um, so I'm going to turn that into a multi-part series and start actually, hopefully, regularly releasing videos. Outstanding, outstanding. And I think they'll be as a high quality as the stuff you've already been doing. Thank you. Um, and that's all we have here tonight at the uh, New World Signals podcast. Thank you all very much for listening. And may you find foreign shores less appealing than your own. This song is by Ray Wiley Hubbard. He was born in Oklahoma. And his wife's name Betty Lou Thelma Liz. He's not responsible for what he's doing. His mother made him what he is And it's up against the wall, redneck mother Mother who has raised a son so well He's 34, drinking on Keton Just kicking hippies
pickup truck. Oh, it's for the oil I put on my hair. T is for T-Bird. H is for Haggard. E is for eggs. And R is for red bag. 